We're in the story of Isaac in the 26th chapter of Genesis. Now, there was a famine beside the famine that was in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to King Abimelech of the Philistines in Gerar. And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt, but stay here in the land that I will show you. Stay here a while, and I will bless you, and I will be with you, and I will give your descendants this land and confirm the oath that I made to your father Abraham. And I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and will give you all this land, and through their offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, because Abraham obeyed me. And did what I required. He followed my commands, my statutes, and decrees. And so Isaac stayed in Gerar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Well, stop me if you've heard this one before. There's a famine in Canaan. And so one of our ancient fathers sets out for Egypt. Well, God had heard that one before. And God had seen it with Abraham. And this time God puts a stop to it. And though apparently Isaac intends during this famine in Canaan to go all the way down to Egypt, God stops him and tells him to stay a while in Gerar, in the land of the Philistines. Well, what do we know about Gerar? Well, we know, first of all, by staying there, you would be a foreigner. You would be a stranger. You would be an alien. And secondly, you would probably be in a place that would be hostile towards you in some ways. Because Isaac's own father, Abraham, had gone to Gerar some years earlier. And fearing for his life, because he thought the people of Gerar might uh, kill him in order to marry his wife, Sarah, he said, she's my sister. And so she was taken into the royal household, and God then began to curse the people of that household and all the people of the Philistines, and they could no longer bear children until Abraham's deception was discovered and things were straightened out. And, and Abraham got blessed, Sarah was set free, and the women of the Philistines were able to bear children again. But their memory was probably still there, and he would be walking back into the land where his father was. And it would also be in a land that, quite honestly, is not near as attractive as Egypt. Egypt has the pyramids. Egypt has technologically everything you could desire. The pyramids, by the time of Isaac, are centuries and centuries old by now. And with the Nile River, as Lil explained to the children, Egypt's the breadbasket of the world. They'll always eat. There'll always be plenty of food. But God says, stay here. In Gerar. So I started wondering, why? Why is God asking something like that of Isaac? And, and the easy answer is, I don't know. I got some theories I thought I might try out on you this morning. The, the first theory is this. I wonder if he's teaching Isaac that you don't always have to replicate the life of your father. Now, as Lil explained to the children, uh, Isaac's father, Abraham, did many good things. But he did a few things that really weren't as God intended, including running off to Egypt, apparently the first time there was a famine, uh, trying there, as he did in Gerar, to give away his wife as his sister. 
and uh, things didn't go well for Pharaoh or for him for a while. And, and maybe Isaac's learning that though our tendency is to replicate our parents and their activities, uh, that we are free and we can choose by obedience to God the best of our parents and then we can overcome the things perhaps our parents uh, gave us that weren't so great. And, and it happens. Every generation, every family replays in some ways uh, their parents' um, lives. Many ways for better and some ways not better. I remember uh, very clearly January 1st, 1964. I was seven years old. Uh, my father was a doctor in the Navy. We'd been in the Navy all my life. And he was preparing to resign his commission uh, in several months and move back to his native Texas. But I didn't know that part. And so there I was on January 1st, 1964, downstairs with my family watching the Cotton Bowl, which you may recall featured Navy and the University of Texas playing for the national championship. Early in the game, Navy did something good. I cheered. My father sent me to my room. I realized then that wasn't the team. Well, 26 plus years later, we're in the living room with my oldest child, who's seven years old. Duke is playing the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and the NCAA Finals and basketball in 1990. Things are not going well for Duke. They're getting worse. My seven-year-old makes some comment about Duke and, and how they're not doing well. So I send him upstairs to his room. <laughs> Things like that, Seri more serious than that, get replayed, but they don't have to. In obedience to God, we can take the best of those who have gone before us, but also be determined not to relive. We don't have to make the same errors. Maybe that's what's being shown. Maybe not. Maybe he just wants to show Isaac what it's like to live in a strange land in a strange time, to, to live in transition between two places. He can't go back to Canaan where the famine was. And he'd love to go to Egypt where it looks like all the answers are, but God won't let him. Maybe what God wants to do is show Isaac and thereby show us what it's like to live in the in-between. To live between what used to be and what's coming. And to live with that tension. Because if you're attentive to the Bible, you realize almost every great Bible person lives part of their life as an alien or stranger between uh, uh, where they were and where they're going to be. All the way from Abraham, who journeys a good part of his life, to the Apostle Paul, who finds himself uh, traveling uh, under the authority and domination of the Roman emperor. Uh, the people wandered 40 years, you'll recall, after the Exodus, before they got to their new place that God had for them called the Promised Land. That's the experience of the people in the Bible. But that's the experience for all of us as well. How much of our life is fit in that transition between what was and what's not here yet? And, and so our relationships perhaps are changing. Perhaps our job situation has changed. And it's not yet like we want it. And we can't go back where it was. Maybe it's our physical health. It isn't what it used to be. It hasn't got solved. And we live in the intervening time. The world changes and God's people get caught in those changes, both in their individual lives 
and in society as a whole. And maybe what God wants to do is teach us through Isaac that even in the midst of the tension and change, I will be with you. Because the fact of the matter is that none of us really likes change that much. None of us really prefer the unknown to the known. They did research some years ago among cancer patients. And they offered them a known solution which was not as effective as it could be and had, had known drawbacks and side effects. And an experimental solution which no one knew yet. But it promised to be more effective and fewer side effects. The majority of the cancer patients in the study took the old known cure with all of its drawbacks. We prefer so often the known to the unknown. We'd rather live our lives settled than live our lives unsettled, even if the settled situation is not all that great. But Isaac's going to have to live unsettled. All of us want to know the end of the story. We want to live in the end of the story. Uh, One of my uh, favorite theologians, N.T. Wright, uh, reminds us that the Apostles' Creed, you can find it in your hymnal, talks about the birth of Jesus and goes straight to his suffering and death and resurrection and doesn't touch the 30 years in between. All of us want to get to the end of the story and we can't live in the intervening tension. Even the greatest fathers and mothers of the early church. A good friend of mine, Mark Williams, was in town this week, and he was reminding me of Diana Nyad. You've probably heard of her. She's the one that makes numerous attempts to swim from Cuba to Florida. And they asked her before a recent attempt, they said, what's the hardest part of this journey? Is it when you leave Cuba and you know you've got so many miles still to go? Or is it when you get within sight of Florida, but you realize it's still 10 to 15 miles away, but you can see it? And she said, neither. It's that point in the journey when I look behind me and all I see is water and I look in front of me and all I see is water. That's where we find ourselves so often. We can't go back where we were and we're not yet where we're going to be and we'd eliminate that tension if we could. Mark told me he exchanged emails with a guy named Rome Hartman. Rome Hartman was until recently the executive producer of CBS's 60 Minutes. And he exchanged emails because Hartman made a very interesting observation in an interview. He said, in America, we don't live through experiences anymore because something happens and we immediately get the interpretation. So we don't have to really struggle with what it might mean. So, for example, NFL football fans don't have to worry about whether their team had a good draft this weekend or a bad draft because the experts have already told you. It's already been solved. The interpretation already given. And Hartman says we actually prefer it like that. So we don't have to live with the unknown and the tension. He said the only time in recent memory when Americans had to live with unknown and with tension was in 9-11. He said because the first airplane hit the tower, and then most of us by then had our TV on and saw the second airplane hit the tower, and we didn't know what or why. And no one could tell us. And there we were. We had to experience and live through the event, and none of us will ever forget it. Because no one could solve it for us, answer it for us, or take away the questions or the pain. And I think maybe God's just saying to Isaac, stay here a while, live in this. Live in this, and come to understand that even in the difficult transitions of life, I'm with you. And then maybe, just maybe God wanted to teach Isaac this. He said, 
and I will bless you. Maybe God wanted Isaac to know it's not in some great and glorious destination like Egypt where my blessings are found, but maybe my blessings are found on the journey along the way to wherever it is you think God wants you to be or wherever you've decided you need to be. It's not the blessings or when you get there, but the blessings are along the way. Isaac is told to settle in this land. Now, I couldn't memorize enough verses to take you all the way to verse 12. If I'd taken you all the way to verse 12, you would have been told this. Isaac planted his crops and they grew up a hundredfold. A hundredfold in, in Gerar. He got much more food in Gerar than what he would have ever had by the Nile in Egypt. God had blessed him on the journey. Think how many biblical characters get blessed or meet God on their way to do something else. Paul is on his way to Damascus, but it's on the way where the risen Christ meets him. The good Samaritan, we didn't realize how good he was at the time, is on his way from Jericho to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's where the temple is. Jerusalem's where worship happens. But before he gets to that golden city, he meets God and gets called by God into service in the form of the man beaten and left for dead by the side of the road. It's all along the way God was teaching Isaac and maybe teaching us that I will Bless you, not in some wonderful conclusion that you've drawn up for your children's lives or your grandchildren's lives or your life or this job or that relationship. It's not there. It's on the way to getting there. One of my favorite uh, theologians is a guy named N.T. Wright. He's written tons of books, and, and they're all good. Um, teaches at St. Andrews University in Scotland. I, I saw an interview with him last week, and he, he was talking about this very point. And this is what he said. The letter to the Romans may be one of the two or three most important books. I mean, they're all important because they're in the Bible, but that the Holy Spirit is used in the Bible over the last couple of millennia. And he's, in fact, as Methodists, we owe our roots to John Wesley, whose heart gets strangely warmed in 1738 because somebody's up there reading a commentary to the, to the book of Romans. Martin Luther, Romans. The Reformers, Romans, centuries before them, Romans continues to touch life after life. And then Wright asks this question, why was Romans written? Well, if you know much about it, Romans was written because Paul wanted to go to Spain. And Spain was his goal, and Spain is where he thought God wanted him to be. But he needed a base of operations to get to Spain. He needed somebody to help him get supplies to go to Spain, somebody who could help fund his trip to Spain, and the closest Christian community that could do that would be in Rome. So he writes a letter to the Roman Christians so they can meet him, can know about him, and will support him in what God really wants him to do, which is to get to Spain. And then N.T. Wright asks, and did he ever make it to Spain? We don't know. The Bible doesn't say that he did. Some traditions place him there. Most do not. So let me get this straight. On his way to do something great for God, something he had in his mind that would be a perfect destination, God used him to do something else, to touch millions of lives over the last 2,000 years. It wasn't in Spain, and it wasn't in Egypt where God was going to work. God was going to work on the way. 
all of us are swimming with water in front of us and water behind us. But we keep swimming because we do not swim alone. God is with us. And because we know that the blessing is not getting to shore, the blessing is something that God has for us along the way.